Hello and welcome to our In Conversation series. I'm Andrew Guile, a solicitor and a director here at GN Law and today I'm with my colleague. Hi, I'm Luke Cowles uh, and I'm an associate solicitor in the department. And today we're going to be looking at the case of Carlo Vellino against the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police, which is a case back from 2001. Um, and so it's, it's not new law. Um, but it does raise issues with regards to the circumstances in which it's fair, just and reasonable to impose a duty of care upon police uh, in relation to people in their custody who might do something predictable, specifically try and evade um, capture or evade arrest and, and try and run away and do something um, that injures themselves. Um, and that has become an issue of some interest recently with the, with the increased number of moped crimes and police officers um, deliberately knocking people off their bikes and things of that nature. So we're going to look at that, that, sort, of, that sort of issue. As a matter of law, um, for the interested and the, the students among you, it, it also brings in um, the, uh, the question of whether the maxim of ex terpi causa non orator actio effects uh, or, or kicks in, which, which is a, a legal maxim that looks at whether or not a person should benefit from their own criminal conduct. Yeah. Uh, and as a general matter of law, um, it's a public policy decision taken um, in the application of this maxim, which says that a person should not uh, benefit from um, uh, their criminal acts. So I'm going to move straight on to, to sort of set the scene yes. uh, with the facts of, uh, of uh, Cellino, or sorry, Vellino, um, which are set out very usefully in the uh, judgment, and I'm going to read from that now, um, and we will certainly um, intend, we certainly intend to make this available as a document you can access in the notes to this video, which hopefully will be helpful. So what the, the, the judges in the Supreme Court, so this is the Supreme Court case. Uh, Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal case, sorry. Um, then uh, they have summarised um, what was said in the, in the uh, court below. And it said, the claimant Carlo Vellino was something of a folk hero in his local community. He was frequently in trouble with the police and had a string of convictions for such offences as burglary, theft, drugs and motoring offences, occasional violence and for failing on numerous occasions to appear at court or surrender to bail. Given that record, he was inevitably very well known to the police. Uh, he lived at 159 Grange Avenue, which was a flat on the second floor together with his girlfriend Tracy Peel, two children, the younger of whom was his own child. The claimant was frequently arrested at his flat, but often, when police came to arrest him, he would seek to evade arrest by jumping from the window of his flat to the ground floor below. This was obviously a foolhardy and potentially highly dangerous activity. Generally, it seems that he would descend by lowering himself from a balcony, which adjoined the kitchen in the flat, and once by hanging from the balcony. He would drop to the ground below. Exceptionally, it seemed that he had even been known to jump from the second floor window without having the benefit of first being able uh, to, uh, to reduce the risk by hanging from the balcony. Um, it then goes on, so that sets the background. So this, this guy was known to um, the police to be arrested at his home address and to try and jump from windows with or without the use of a lower balcony to, to help him break his fall. Um, and on the date of the arrest... Well, what happened exactly yeah. is there was an, an alleged sort of plan that it talks about where they were going to arrest him the following morning at 10.30 
and then these police officers get called to a party and see him at this party, mm. sort of the night before, if you like. And it's at this point that they decide, okay, well, let's just arrest you now, essentially. Uh, and it's kind of the facts sort of go from there as to them arresting him. And then at some point, he manages to evade arrest from the, or, you know, evade, um, or not evade rather, but sort of break free, if you like. Uh, and then does jump out the window uh, yeah. and, and quite badly injure himself. Um, now, the difficulty is is that the facts are a little bit unclear in sort of uh, paragraphs four and five of this uh, judgment. It, it talks about the judge not being persuaded either way as to exactly what happened, um, in part because the injuries of uh, Valino are such that he doesn't actually have memory of what happened. No, um, he, he ended up with severe brain damage and tetraplegia so the injuries he's, he suffered were oh. other than dying about as severe as you can absolutely as you can get really and so that means to some degree yes you've got the officer accounts and certainly uh, putting it mildly the judge was not persuaded by their accounts only so they've had to sort of piece together a little bit of what's happened I think that's a, if we just pause it I think that's a really important point because in terms of the rights and wrongs of the decision here I think morally people watching this video um, will certainly um, take note of, of what the judge in the lower court found and, and um, I, I think you've been rather generous to the police officers he found them to be liars yes. um, they claimed they weren't in the room when he jumped out the window and he found that to be f- plainly false and, and um, what's interesting and he found is two of them were in the room yeah, and the judge did not out the require the account of the other if you like because obviously Valino doesn't have an account mm-hmm. the judge was quite happy to make that Finding, if you like, mm. irrespective that there wasn't a direct witness statement saying yes, you were, you know, from Valino, mm. um, and that yeah. fact comes out anyway. So, what, so what, what really struck me about the facts of this case is that you have a person jumping out of the window. You've got two officers in the room with him. That, that's a finding of fact at the lower court, which is assumed therefore as being correct in the court of appeal when looking at this judgment. Um, and so, therefore, the factual matrix that the court of appeal were looking at were two officers, police officers, in the room who they have also concluded could, and certainly morally should, have stopped him from jumping out of the window, but they didn't. They stood by and let him do it. Well, yes. um, so you have a situation where he, it, they're, they're trying to arrest him, not very hard, obviously, but, but is it, the circumstances are he, he should be being arrested, but they, they've not managed to, or deliberately not, um, not done so, because they're happy to watch him jump out of a window. Um, but that in itself is, a, is arguably, or was, I think, uh, correctly in, in saying the Court of Appeal found as a crime on behalf of the officers. But the, but the person in question is themselves committing a crime of, of, of resisting arrest and trying to evade justice. So you've got two crimes being committed. You've got a claimant who is, on the face of it, um, going to fall foul of, of this maxim of ex turpi causa, that you can't benefit from your own criminal conduct. But at the same time, you've got this really quite morally repugnant and very unpleasant behaviour of the police officers. I mean, because they they talk about the position for ordinary citizens uh, and they they literally say, just to, you know, as part of the decision, which tells us stuff we know already, but as a sort of baseline reminder, that there isn't a natural legal duty for us as ordinary citizens to rescue others. No, that's right. 
that's the idea of if someone, dare you say, is about to jump from a building... You're under no legal duty to stop them. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's the balance between moral duties versus legal duties. Mm. And, it, and it sort of has to be that way because otherwise um, you can imagine how much extension that could be, yeah. you know, to what... Although they note that in some countries it's not that way. Well, of course. But, but it's, yeah. it, it's, it's that way here and that's, that's, the, that's the... And point. where it sort of goes forward at this point is the fact that, well, of course, we're not dealing with ordinary citizens here. We're dealing with police officers who have more duties within the context of, of certainly this situation, but in general. Mm. Um, and then they start looking at the point of pre-arrest. So pre-arrest, these police officers owe Valino no duty at that point. Yeah. Um, but at the point of arrest, that's when the duty sort of begins. And we're talking about, ultimately... This is dealing with negligence duties is really what they're, that they're essentially looking at. And you've got the issue of, is there a duty of care? Was that duty of care breached? And then sort of moving on to, was it fair, just and reasonable? And this is where essentially all the, the sort of argument between the, the, the judges comes about. Mm. Um, and, and and they, they also they, they refine that a little bit further yeah. because they say that it's not the fact that he's been arrested that creates the duty it's the fact that having been arrested he's then in their detention Yes, yes. and of course the point at which he breaks away from their detention he's no longer in their detention and therefore it's well, difficult to impose it, a duty exactly. of care to look after him when he's not in your control well exactly because if you're a police officer and you're on one side of the flat and you have someone who's on the far side of the flat, quite some distance away, you can arrest them by simply your words. You are under arrest, we mm. are on suspicion of X, mm. Y, Z. And you're actually under arrest at that point, but there is no direct physical detention at that point outside of sort of legal detention. Yeah, yeah. So you're certainly in control of his And that's why movements. them being in the room, them being or him being in their detention, um, was necessary to find in in that regard. Mm. Um, had they not been in the room, had that been accepted, then this case would have been judged quite differently, I can imagine. Mm. Yeah, because one of the things that Lord Justice uh, Sheeman, he gives the the the, um, the main judgment, he, he says that there is no doubt that the police do owe a duty of care to a person under arrest. Mm. Um, but the question here is whether they owe a duty to, to protect him from himself yes. in circumstances where the conduct of... Of this, uh, of Mr. Valino, uh, in is a predictable, but also b involves a commission commission of another criminal offence yeah. in, in in terms of running away, and that's really what it comes down to. And just just to highlight some of the difficulties of you know trying to pick your way through this case morally and uh, you know ignoring legally, is the fact that the there was no doubt in the court's mind that if a duty of care were imposed upon the police to prevent him doing this foreseeable act of jumping out of a window then there is no doubt that they breached it yeah. so breach causation no problem at all we're going right back to the start of the negligence test and saying is it fair just and reasonable to impose the duty of care and one of the key questions in this case which the court which the court below said was a key question and inextricably linked and the court of appeal agreed is this um, maxim of ex terpi causa yes exactly because if it applies it is indicative or possibly conclusive of the question of whether or not a duty of care exists. Uh, and it, you also mentioned foreseeability, which is very much a fact-sensitive situation. And, mm. and at the very beginning of this, you, you read the circumstances where it, it's quite plain that everybody knew this is his way of escaping. 
Yeah. Uh, the police knew it, and that's why injury of this kind was foreseeable because it was foreseeable that he would jump out the window, potentially try and escape in that way. Yeah. Uh, and whilst we're not going to talk about it, it there is some relevance. In, in uh, earlier in two thousand and eighteen, a case called Robinson Supreme Court decision, police make an arrest. The individual tries to escape, um, and, and essentially, at some point, when the police catch up, they sort of knock him over, knock him over, and they will fall onto this this elderly lady, and, and she sort of breaks her hip. And then mm-hmm. the issue of foreseeability is in that situation where you've got a busy place. Is it foreseeable that if you try and arrest him there and then, he's going to run, and him running may well be yeah. a problem for for other people in that situation? Yeah. Not going to delve into it too much because that one doesn't deal with the the issue that we're we're looking at here, ex terpy. But it's about foreseeability being very much case specific. What did they know, and what did they think was likely? Again, if this person had no history of ever jumping out windows in that sort of situation, this case would have perhaps been looked at very differently again mm. because that injury isn't seen as foreseeable or mm. may not have been seen as foreseeable. Yeah. So. I mean, moving forward, essentially, Sheeman's... Uh, by the way, we haven't mentioned that this, that this case was decided two to one. There was a dissenting yes. judgment by is, Lord Justice Sedley, which, which yeah. some people might, might find quite persuasive in yes. terms of the moral angle that it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the two main, ju- main, main judges, the primary judgment being given by, Mr., uh, by Lord Justice uh, Sheeman, um, does conclude... Um, as we've been sort of like leading through in the last uh, five minutes or so, to a conclusion that um, no duty of care was was owed, mm-hmm. um, partly because he wasn't in the immediate power of the officers at the point at which he, he jumped out, but also because of the fact that um, exter causa does lead to the correct conclusion that there wasn't any um, duty of care owed in the circumstances. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and so on on. On that main judgment, the, 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 the appeal failed. Yeah, I mean, just following on literally from what you're saying, at paragraph 26, it says, uh, if the police were not at the moment of arrest under a GTO to the claimant to take care that he did not hurt himself whilst escaping, then I fail to see how it can be said that the police had such a duty thrust on them at the moment he broke free. So they're sort of comparing the pre-arrest and the sort of breaking free situation in that same sort of idea mm-hmm. um, as opposed to being injured as part of the detention perhaps uh, and there's obviously they, they mentioned a lot of different cases and, and there's one where you have someone sort of jumping out of a police van and then they sort of compare it to a situation where um, let's say that person in the police van when it's sort of being conveyed to the police station is drunk or and they haven't say um, belted him, belted hit him in, or they're driving dangerously, so that it's more yeah. foreseeable that he he effectively falls out, yeah. um, and, and that's caused in the sort of process of their detention, and it is directly caused by them, as opposed to he breaks free, but just breaking free didn't actually immediately cause the injury as such. It's the sort of action mm. that happens afterwards, because yeah. in theory he could have broken free and tried to run out the front door. You know, sure. obviously there's officers around, but within that context, there were, it wasn't the only next action that was definitely possible. Mm. Again, fact specific here, we say it was foreseeable because um, sort of his modus operandi, how he sort of tended to deal with these situations, was in this situation, it was in no doubt. Mm. 
I think one uh, from again from a, from an academic point of view in this case, I think it's it it's quite useful to look at, at exactly how Lord Justice Sheeman came to his conclusions, uh, and he did so in exactly the same way as the lower court as well. Mm-hmm. When looking at how ex terpi causa, um, how it kicks in essentially, because it could have kicked in in one of two ways, uh, or, or or both ways, arguably. Yes. One is to act as a defence, so they, he, the court, in theory, could have taken the view that a duty of care was owed, it was breached, and, and uh, there was consequential loss, but that the police had the defence of ex terpi causa, and that's, that, and that's what then fails, uh, causes the, the case to fail. But it can also come in, as I've described earlier, in actually determining in the first instance whether or not a duty of care exists in the first place. And he clearly preferred that route and yes. has used it in that way to defeat the claim at that earlier stage. Now, while the outcome of this case wouldn't have been any different had it come in in either, in either fashion, I think you certainly it is possible to conceive of scenarios um, where it might make a difference, uh, where um, if it were to not prevent a duty of care arising, so a duty of care does arise, um, and for whatever reason, it, it's not there um, from a defence perspective, and, and cases could could succeed. Exactly. So, so academically, uh, I think that's quite important. Well, exactly. So, following on exactly what you just mentioned in regards to what Lord Sheeman actually says at the end, um, so his judgment finishes at um, paragraph thirty-seven. His part of the judgment, and which just basically says, "I dismiss the appeal." But thirty-six is sort of his final line, mm. where he says, "Like Elias J, which you know is the the judge beforehand." I would find that in the present case that the officers did not owe the claimant any duty to bar his progress through the window. And that, like you mentioned before, is the issue where there was no positive finding that the officers, let's say, for example, encouraged him to jump, but that they were essentially guilty of standing idly by um, and, and allowing it. And it's whether that duty existed for them to actually try and prevent it, if you like. And, and he says, you know, like we said, did not owe the claimant any duty to bar his progress through the window. And, and of course, you know, we do appreciate the the injuries that um, you know Mr. Valino suffers are, you know, are tragic. Um, but you know, the the judges do make the the distinction that this isn't, you know, that they're not necessarily looking at just moral duties, if you like, or, or how the public might react to certain mm-hmm. things and, and try and draw that distinction between say the public us the media versus judicial independence and, and making a decision or at least a legal decision based on, on what they see the situation to be yeah the 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 actual judgment in Villina then goes on to look at um your justice sedley's dissenting mm-hmm. uh, decision before uh, coming back to sir murray stewart smith where he supports uh, Lord Justice Sheeman and gives a slightly different approach and, and actually quite helpfully sets out some sort of uh, key principles which, which, we can, um, which we can come to. But let's, let's divert um, briefly to look at the, the moral standpoint of Lord Justice Sedley. So yes. what, what, what does he say? So we've got Sedley. Um, Sedley starts from sort of paragraph 38 and um, obviously he has the benefit of having already read Lord Sheeman's uh, written mm. uh, stuff, so that means he, he can kind of have that comparison in that regard. Uh, again, you know, he's not disputing that uh, the officers in of themselves, um, their actions fell short of active encouragement. Um, 
And he has this bit here where he says, so the claimant was guilty of the crime of escape from lawful custody and the officers were guilty of the crime of permitting a prisoner to escape. So, you know, it's mm. sort of that admission that by allowing him to escape, that, that in of itself is a problem. Mm. Um, and so, so, I mean, my, my dad always used to say to me, two wrongs don't make a right. And and I think that's true. And I think that you know that chimes with. I'm sure that chimes with a lot of people watching this video. Yes. I mean, at paragraph 55, he says this: I consider that arresting officers do. I'm adding in the do owe a prisoner a duty n- not to afford both a temptation to escape and an opportunity of doing so, where there is a known risk, as there was here, that the prisoner will do himself real harm even if much of the blame for hurting himself will ultimately come to rest on the prisoner himself. That duty was breached in this case, and I do not believe that a legal system which shuts its eyes to such things is doing justice, especially, but not only, where the officer's neglect is also a crime. To deny the claimant redress in such a situation because of his own offending is both to make him an outlaw and to reward the misconduct of his captors. To apportion responsibility as Elias Justice would have done had he not considered his path to be blocked by doctrine is, in my view, to do justice. And what the lower court said was that if a duty had been um, owed... So they sort of go past the, let's assume that... What would have happened, and he would have said that the the claimant was two-thirds to blame and the police were one-third to blame. And so... And so damages would be apportioned. Yeah. Essentially figure out the value and one-third gets paid, two-thirds isn't yeah, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that a, that a policy decision that says, you know, criminals cannot benefit financially from their own criminal conduct. I mean, any, anyone can hear that, think about that, and think, yeah, no, that's right, that's right. But at the same time, where you have wrongdoing, on, as you do on the facts of this case, it does not sit well with me at all that the police officers receive no sanction whatsoever through this, or that the claimant certainly had no redress in terms yes. of looking at, at, at their culpability. What it, what it essentially says, you know, otherwise, is essentially if the police have done something wrong as well, that bit essentially gets ignored because ultimately, there you are, here's yes. the defence. But let's remember, these officers were not found factually to have been in a situation where they could have done more. Yes, They were found to have willfully stood and done nothing. Well, yes, they use idly by, which is a very much a suggestive statement. It's quite clear to me that that was, that was the finding. Perhaps others might disagree on the wording, but um, it is quite clear to me that Lord Justice Sedley has viewed it in that way, yes. that these officers have committed a crime. Um, well, he uses the word guilty, doesn't he? Yeah, which is a very emotive word for that and, type of and, issue. And so, yes, there's public policy that says that the claimant shouldn't benefit from his own crime, but surely there must be some sort of balance mm-hmm. when the 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 criticism that you are making of um, of the uh, of the defendant is also of a crime. And yeah. as I say, two two wrongs don't make a right, and surely the balance must be to find out who is most to blame um, and allow him to recover in the appropriate proportions. Um, and so I, I have a lot of sympathy. You know, I, I can certainly see the logical legal argument that led to the, to the decision coming out two to one. Um, but morally, I have, a, I have a lot of sympathy for, for the position of Lord Justice Sedley. Yeah, and certainly you mentioned about the balancing act um, in paragraph 54, so just before the, the, the bit you wrote, uh, you sort of read, which gives his overall view as to 
how his position is. Mm. They, they do mention um, from a previous case, which is, uh, and they, they sort of quote Saunders v. Edwards, 1987, and they look at, uh, and this is literally what it says, it says, on the one hand, it is unacceptable that any court should aid or lend its authority to a party seeking to pursue or enforce an object or agreement which the law prohibits. So that's, you know, certainly they talk about contract law being a more common applicability for this type of issue. Uh, but it says, on the other hand, it is unacceptable that a court should, on the first indication of unlawfulness, affecting any aspect of a transaction, draw up its skirts and refuse all assistance to the plaintiff, no matter how serious his loss, nor how disproportionate his loss to the unlawfulness of his conduct. Mm. So that's the same idea, that as soon as you find something wrong in this situation, you just decide, well, that's it, game over, we're not yeah. going to assist you, and that's that. Uh, and that's sort of, you can see why Sedley raises that, because that's the line of thinking he has. You know, simply having this defence, does that mean he should automatically lose? Sedley obviously thinks he shouldn't. Mm. Sure. Mm. Yeah. And then moving on to the final judgment of um, which is a you know relatively a bit shorter um, yeah, or at of, least certainly uh, Stuart Smith yeah at paragraph 72 he, he sets out a very useful summary of, of how the legal thought process should flow and 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 when you read through this you see how you get to a position where um, you know somewhat regrettably I have to admit mm-hmm. you, you get to the correct decision in law. Um, that just ignores the defendant's conduct. And so just, just to um, trot through this quickly. So he says, the first thing you think of is the operation of the principle arises, this is ex turpine causa, where the claimant's uh, claim is founded upon his own criminal or immoral acts, which it clearly was here, trying to evade justice. The fact which gives rise to the claim must be inextricably linked with the criminal activity, which on the fact of this case it was. Yeah. Um, it is not sufficient if the criminal activity merely gives occasion for tortious conduct of the defendant. Um, difficult to give examples of, of how that might affect here, but how that might um, come to pass in other factual scenarios, but that's not what happened here. So we're clearly ticking box one. So part two of the test, and it's a four-part test, um, the principle is one of public policy. So exter by causa, public policy. It is not for the benefit of the defendant. Well, that's, so the that's the point, isn't it? So the public policy um, justification, reasoning behind the application of ex turpine causa mm-hmm. is there to prevent claimants recovery. And that's the balance between the consequence and the objective. Yeah. You're saying the consequence may be that it, def- it benefits the defendant, but that was never the actual objective to start with. Correct. And then it goes on to say, since if the principle applies, which it clearly does, the cause of action does not arise the defendant's conduct is irrelevant. So if you don't get over that, 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 that first hurdle, then you don't get as far as looking at the defendant's conduct. And in so many other um, you know, legal thought processes and legal, legal tests that you have to you know, approach in a systematic and, and chronological way, that happens in lots of other circumstances. Yes. Um, so it's not that unusual that it happens here. And he says there is no question of proportionality between the conduct of the claimant and the defendant. So, you know, he, he's saying, well, if you apply the test correctly, which is in this fashion and in this way and in this order, um, then you simply don't get as far as looking at, you know, the moral rights and wrongs of the situation. Um, and that produces the result that it produces. Um, there's one other thing it says is that the case, uh, in the case of criminal conduct, this has to be sufficiently serious 
to merit the application of the principle. So it's not that exterpi causa is going to apply in every single scenario yeah. where something's a crime. Um, you know, I mean, opening somebody else's letters is a crime, but you know, um, uh, there are some. Uh, the obvious ones the they, they talk about is road traffic accidents. More often than not, most accidents, it may be that you were going 31, 32, and they're going to look at. It's a crime, yeah. yeah and, and they're going to look at contributory negligence, mm. apportionment, rather than simply that's it, you cannot make a claim, illegality. And so there are examples where this type of doctrine isn't applied um, because otherwise the vast majority of ordinary personal injury claims just simply couldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good point. So, uh, you know, he applies those principles and um, and comes to the same conclusion as Lord Justice Sheenan. So it's a very interesting case. Yes. And I think as we were discussing before, before um, starting recording uh, today, it's... You know, from a from a student perspective, if there's any students watching this um, uh, this in conversation uh, um, episode, it's quite useful in terms of you know trotting back through some of the key issues and, and some of the key key tests involved yes. in negligence claims, We're focusing on upon you know the circumstances in which it might be fair, just, and reasonable to impose a duty of care in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think you've been looking at some. Some yes. more more recent issues with exactly. mopeds and, and I mean, stuff like that. just sort of touching upon it in a sort of short fashion, but something that has been sort of in the news in the last sort of year, two years, if you like, is moped crime. Yeah, and certainly the rise of it. And you've got um, a clear sort of balance between uh, the sort of public wanting sort of justice to be done, and the police are the ones who are having to try and figure out, well, how do we go about doing this? Mm. And then the potential consequences of, let's say, certain types of actions which might seem disproportionate. Mm. Um, Now, just a a few statistics. I mean, a lot of these are taken from Guardian, BBC website, these types of places. Um, And from the BBC website, uh, this is from May 2018, it mentioned that um, there were 827 moped crime-related offences in 2012. These are ones recorded rather than actual because plenty of people may not record it. Um, and this has gone up to 23,000, and it says last year, which suggests 2017. Um, now, that's a massive that's jump. a massive increase. Yeah. Uh, and so that in of itself forces the police to take a new strategy. Uh, and it's this strategy which becomes quite controversial is, is is certainly I suppose the word that comes to mind and you've got this um, strategy called uh, tactical pursuit and contact and it's I think it's it's certainly not new because for a long time you've had situations where you've got somebody perhaps on a moped and the police are chasing them they don't necessarily have a policy of making contact and sort of if that moped slows down actually sort of physically nudging them with the car to try and get them to fall off the moped and that allowing the police to to go and make an arrest and and clearly sort of the the more recent issues of of making that contact is about the foreseeable injury that might Mm -hmm. um, result but also even before the contact essentially if you're a police car and you're speeding through lanes and that means the person trying to get away is on their moped speeding as well through lanes you, you have had situations where you know the individual on the moped has died either they've been perhaps hit by another car or you know mm. naturally you're going at such a speed you, you might lose control and 
some of the victims have been quite young, sort of teenagers. Uh, and so there is that balancing exercise of, yes, um, the public opinion is wanting or the desire for justice, but also trying to find that right balance as to, within the context of democracy and civilised society, what options or tactics are available and aren't disproportionate to what we ultimately want to to be or how we want it to sort of function, if mm. you like. Mm. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, it is something that, I mean, even on Question Time and, and programmes like this, you do hear questions on it come up. And it, it is difficult because you've got people on both sides of the argument. Certainly, if you're a family who, yes, you might have had a, a young kid who was being or perhaps involved in, in criminal conduct, it's not seen as, let's say, the, the, the top criminal conduct going. And, and if you end up having a child that's lost their life as a result, you can't help but think it was over a mobile phone. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's... I mean, so, it's, I mean if, if, if a court looking at such a case now was to apply Valino, the judgment in Valino, yes. the first thing they would have to determine is whether um, ex topi causa... Uh, is applicable. So the first thing they need to do is to go to um, the test in paragraph 72, most helpfully perhaps, um, and probably in some in some strange way, um, look at look at part three and see whether or not the criminal conduct is sufficiently serious to merit its application. Because if you are going to apply it, mm-hmm. um, it's clearly going to be criminal conduct in trying to evade capture. Yes, exactly. Um, and and having committed a crime or part and parcel of a crime it's been, that, that's been committed, and then you won't have a duty of care imposed at all. Mm-hmm. So you won't get to a position of actually looking at whether or not the police were driving faster, pushing them to drive faster, whether they... Um, could have pushed them off their bike as they were driving past a grassy knoll and that or something like this. issue of at what point should the police perhaps have stopped the pursuit? Um, so it might, yeah, have, yeah, yeah. it might have begun as proportionate, but there might have come a point yeah. where perhaps and I appreciate that's the nature of hindsight, but they would yeah. have dash cams more often exactly. than not. I mean, so like you can see. imagine dash cam footage, and I'm just imagining a, yes. imagining a hypothetical scenario where the the moped driver is driving past. A park. There's no railing. It's grass. You could have knocked them off onto the grass. And the question for the officer would be, in cross-examination, undoubtedly, why didn't you knock them off there? Why did you knock them off as they were going past, you know, one of these um, uh, big boxes where all the telephone stuff is, and they fall onto that, and they smash quite, their head open. Yeah, quite um, highly hurt themselves. Or why that. did you knock them into an oncoming car? Because why didn't you take the earlier opportunity? Exactly, since it's quite clearly an option that they had thought of, given they did it later, hmm. and... You know, a court's not going to quite accept. Well, I didn't think of it earlier. No, <laughs> but that <laughs> sort of questioning that, yeah. would be looking at whether or not their conduct was in breach of a duty of care. But yeah. you don't even get to that questioning if ex by causa applies and kicks in to actually prevent a duty of care yes. arising in the first place. Mm-hmm. So you don't even look at the conduct of the police officers, whether or not they could have, could or might not have killed. You know, could have avoided killing an individual, mm-hmm. uh, a person. So. Um, very interesting issues yeah. um, and, and, and difficult issues but I, th- I think one of the points you made is absolutely right I mean ultimately as Lord Justice Sedley says the law is there to provide justice who's it there to provide justice for? Mm-hmm. it's to provide justice for the average 
you know, man or woman in the street. Mm-hmm. So if people think, well, I don't consider that to be justice, then maybe the law should change. Yes, well, that's uh, the thing, because you've got deterrent effect on the one hand, but also the other hand of to what extent are we allowing police officers to be essentially let loose, where mm-hmm. you have someone on a moped, yes, they've committed perhaps one crime or even several crimes in the last hour, because... You know, we've we've seen when we were looking in advance. You know, some people have been sentenced having stolen twenty mobiles in an hour. Is is, is the sort of facts. But mm. at what point is it simply well because that crime has happened now the police have sort of can't blanch a little bit to essentially pursue as they wish, and they with the knowledge that simply ex turpie cows is going to exist and they can, to all intents and purposes, get away with it if yeah. the individual ends up quite seriously injured. I think, as a practitioner, I would hope that if the police conduct got to the point where it was clearly disproportionate, that a, uh, an, a, an, a, you know, an appropriate judicial body at whatever level of court the case... Is gross case, misconduct yeah, type that, that, that if you get a scenario like that, that the police's actions then would be checked. Mm. Um, you know, I've seen some of these stop videos and they do you know, wobble a bit and fall off to the side and you think, well, that's okay. Um, but in, in other ones, yeah, obviously people being killed, you really do have to look at those um, very much more carefully and, and look at whether or not, you know, the line is, has been drawn incorrectly Absolutely. Um, and, and have a look at the police officer's conduct. And certainly that's the problem which certainly isn't answered now, but between, with some situations where you can't control the proportionality and perhaps the, the let's say the execution of it is going quite badly, then the law will be such that it just simply will outlaw it so contact is outlawed Mm. because yes in theory there might be the situations where someone is wobbled but too much too often there's more injury that is occurring so sort of the theory of it isn't being met the actual execution of it is leading to serious injury more than they had intended and at that point it just simply gets banned I mean we're not going to go into it now but that's some of the issues that get raised with tasers traditionally yeah you know Serious injury, should we just simply outlaw tasers because of these possibilities that have arisen? Mm. Um, it's the same one, it's the same with, with car on car chases. Yes. Police are sometimes criticised for upping the ante in terms of char- chasing people, which per- per- makes the person in front go even faster. Yes. But, but you know, what are the police supposed to do? Not chase people. I mean, well, you know, it, it, it's, it's very difficult. And, and sometimes, you know, innocent pedestrians completely uh, un connected with, with the pursuit are killed in, in those sorts of situations. So um, it's very difficult to, to know exactly where the right and wrongs of it are, but um, these sorts of cases do raise these issues um, and raise some, you know, some very interesting sort of legal balancing acts that, that need to be uh, attempted to try and um, solve these sorts of cases. Yes. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you found it useful. Um, this is one of many uh, videos in our In Conversation series, so please feel free to um, watch any of those. You might also find them uh, informative and helpful. Um, and if you have enjoyed this video, please share it.